This is Dr. David Pomeroy, your host on ADHD Focus. I wanted to remind you that the show is not intended to be a recommendation for diagnosis or treatment of any condition for any specific person. Please consult your mental health professional or doctor managing your ADHD or mental health issues about any diagnosis or treatment-related information that you hear on the show. Refer your ADHD provider to the show if he or she would like more information. Thank you. Good day and welcome back to ADHD Focus. This is your host, Dr. David Pomeroy, bringing you the show that provides you with accurate, relevant, and up-to-date information on all aspects of ADHD. My guest today is Dr. Joel Nigg, who is a professor in the Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience at Oregon Health Science University and director of the Division of Psychology. He is a researcher and leading researcher in the field of ADHD, author of many papers, and his most recent book is Getting Ahead of ADHD, an up-to-date summary of what we know in areas of ADHD and the environment, exercise, diet, video games, pollutants, and looks at different new treatments and all kinds of things related to ADHD. Today we'll be addressing sleep and the ADHD brain. Dr. Nig, welcome to the program. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So first let's talk about what's going on in the brain during sleep. I know um, certainly when I was growing up and even all the way through med school, it seemed like, well, that's when your brain kind of shuts down and, and rests. Uh, and that's exactly opposite now that we know more about it. That's right, uh, as you point out. And we, we now know the brain is just as active during sleep as it is when you're awake, except it's, it's conducting different activities. And, and, of course, there's numerous functions now known about sleep. Uh, some of it is housekeeping, uh, cleaning up the brain, uh, taking mm-hmm. out the garbage and that sort of thing. But one of the most important uh, things we've learned about the brain during sleep is it's running a lot of the same circuitry that it ran during the day. So we know that part of what it's doing is strengthening neural connections and building up neural circuits uh, based on what it learned that day. And... Uh, in particular, one of the phenomena that's very important for ADHD is that we now know that sleep is really where learning is consolidated. There's a phenomenon called sleep-dependent learning. So what kids have learned that day goes into their short-term storage, but it doesn't really get put into knowledge, into their real knowledge base, except during sleep, when the brain actually reactivates the same circuits that it activated during learning. Mm and consolidates those. And so uh, we now know that this kind of sleep-consolidated learning actually is, is essential even for very young toddlers uh, and, uh, as well as for adults. And so one of the phenomena that I think is interesting with ADHD is he knew it yesterday and today he forgot it. And mm-hmm. that would may, not necessarily caused by, by not sleeping, but that would be kind of what you would expect if somebody didn't sleep well because they would not have consolidated the knowledge. So that's just something I'll highlight out of the many, many things that are happening during sleep. Mm-hmm. Now, is that something that tends to be more happen more in um, different uh, phases of the sleep cycle? I had um, read somewhere that that last sleep cycle, and those are about 90 to 120 minutes long, the last one is where a lot of the short-term to long-term memory transition happens. 
Yeah, that that's right. So there is. It's very important that that all the sleep cycles are gone through, and that the deep sleep occurs as well. And so that's exactly right. This is um, this is part of why it's so critical that uh, kids get enough sleep, uh, adults too, because if you if you interrupt your sleep at the wrong time, you'll never reach those necessary sleep stages. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are let's talk about some of the things that prevent good sleep. Um, and we'll talk mainly about the behavioral aspects, not just the, the medical ones, which we can touch on later. Uh, yeah. And, I, and certainly in my experience in seeing over 3,000 uh, people with ADHD the past 14 years, uh, there are many common ones at different stages, children, teens, adults, and others that are particular to each one. Um, yes. So looking at the... Uh, some of the ones that may particularly apply to, to children, kids under 12, uh, it's as far as uh, both falling asleep and staying asleep, I think usually it's the falling asleep, what patterns, what dysfunctional patterns they've developed. Could you uh, talk about some of those? Absolutely, and as you point out, there are, uh, a certain number of what are called primary sleep disorders that have a true physical cause that we'll come to later in the discussion. But uh, in the case of kids with ADHD, the majority of kids with ADHD have some sort of a problem with getting a, a good bedtime and a good sleep, uh, and it's related to behavioral problems around sleep, so what are called sleep-related behavior problems or secondary sleep problems. And there's four main classes of these. Uh, the first class is that they can't sleep without special conditions being met. So there's, a, there's either a long extended process they have to go through or everything has to be exactly right and it's a lot of work for the, the family to get them to go to sleep uh, because they've, all these, they've learned behaviorally that they need all these mm-hmm. special conditions. The second major problem is that the child doesn't want to go to bed or doesn't want to go to sleep. They've developed some kind of negative meaning or negative association we're going to bed and going to sleep is a negative thing for them and they don't want to do it. The third uh, class is waking up during the night and, and requiring the parent to intervene and do something for them to go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. And all of these kind of uh, fall under a, a fourth area, which is that uh, there aren't appropriate limits or boundaries around sleep. So the child and the parent have not been able to reach a mutually agreeable uh, way that limits are set up. So that the child either can't get themselves to go to bed or refuses to go back to bed after they wake up or can't uh, stay asleep or can't initiate sleep. They, they can't, and the parent uh, is, is unsure how to get this to stop, and so the problem continues. So that can come, cut across all of the others. So uh, those are the really main areas, and these behavior problems are extremely common uh, in kids with ADHD. I won't say they're universal, but they are uh, more than half of the kids with ADHD that, as a result, they don't get enough sleep. I think an mm-hmm. additional uh, source... Uh, there's many other sources of, of poor sleep. Um, you mentioned before the show started that there's so much to do. Kids are staying up late trying to get their homework done. We'll talk uh, perhaps later about blue screens, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, phones or I- iPhones as a, as a hazard, sleep hazard. Um, uh, another one that sometimes comes up is that nobody's getting enough sleep in the family. The parents aren't getting enough. Yep. The kids aren't getting enough. Uh, and, and often uh, it turns out in my experience that and I, actually, I, I'm not surprised because I didn't always know this, but a large number of, of us actually don't know how much sleep kids need. 
and mm-hmm. it can be surpri- it can be surprising and daunting to realize how much sleep they need and what time they actually have to start going to bed in order for that to happen and it it becomes simply logistically difficult for families uh, because there's so much that they that is going on so I think those are all factors that fit, that fit in here yeah and it, particularly with um, teens I think that they kind of get scrunched because they both in their sleep phase changes in uh, adolescent years end up going to bed later and also they have more homework but then they have to get up earlier um, that's right you so you probably get, you, yeah go ahead I'm sorry they get scrunched there and I, my pet peeve with schools is you really can start school at 830 you don't have to start yes. at 730 yeah and your listeners are probably some of them probably aware that there are cities and jurisdictions now that are doing that change in high yes. school that are they're pushing high school start times later this has actually been recommended now by national um, academies to mm-hmm. uh, make this change universally because uh, evolution did not design teenagers to get up early in the morning uh, no, or to go to no. bed early at night and we're working against evolution here and as I understand there are a few uh, school districts that have even tracked things okay before the change after the change and gee, we have less sleepy kids, there's less depression, their standardized test scores are higher. And all they did was change the start time. Um, and, just, and even so, by just an hour, so yeah, even, that, yeah. even that one hour change makes a big difference. Now, one of the things that uh, I understand also is that um, 60, 70% of people with ADHD across all age ranges don't have a reliable melatonin production. So that may figure into some of the difficulties falling to sleep um, and maybe one area, way of augmenting that routine to, uh, to include getting better sleep, better yeah. sleep onset. Yes, that's right. There's a, there's a, I don't know about those percentages. I think those uh, numbers are probably going to need further epidemiological study, but there certainly is a, a, probably an elevated ratio. Certainly it's an interesting um, prog- um, tantalizing possibility, the elevated ratio of kids with ADHD who have this uh, what's called a delayed uh, sleep-wake phase disorder. You can think of it just as a circadian offset disorder where their body is producing the necessary sleep hormones at the wrong time and mm-hmm. this this may be because their body did not entrain the brain has to entrain to the light dark cycle early in life and that somehow that entraining didn't uh, develop properly or they may have some other genetic or other reason why their sleep phase is different and uh, again they're like teenagers only they're not teenagers yet they they're not built for the early morning, early night schedule mm-hmm. that our society has imposed on them. And as you point out, there may be, there, there's often a biological, uh, I mean, a behavioral piece of this. This often can be styled behaviorally where they've gotten in the habit of, of this and their body can learn and then train itself to, to mm-hmm. produce these hormones earlier by practicing the behavior and the body learns to adjust just like our um, body learns to adjust to other rhythms we give it. That said, though, um, there are uh, cases where it truly is a, a uh, need to be intervened with around the hormonal balance and the melatonin balance. Um, yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about melatonin, but that's a special situation. Yeah, we can get to that one um, later. I think the the key behavioral one, or one of the things you mentioned in terms of the in training the brain with light and dark. Um, now, of course, there's we're under light, artificial indoor light, uh, yes. much longer than the 
um, natural cycles outdoors, but also yeah. the, the uh, I guess, more intense light exposure of screen devices. Um, not only the distraction of your mind's bouncing around and you put it down and you try to go to sleep, but just uh, the uh, blue light that screens put out, whether the color on the screen is actually blue or not, um, and that uh, impacts I think people of all ages now the the really common device use um, is a problem. What kinds of things can can people do to minimize that imbalance in terms of the uh, light and later light exposure? That's absolutely right. About the the screens and devices are are a major uh, hazard for our, all of our sleep and kids included. And there really is a biological basis, as you point out. The part of the brain, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, that uh, is involved in sleep hormone production uh, relies on light signals to know when it's time to start shifting the body's uh, hormone production towards sleep. Mm-hmm. And that, that is fooled by our screens because, as you point out, they include uh, the spectrum of light the so-called blue spectrum portion of the spectrum that that part of the brain is relying on for its signaling, and so as you know, as we all know, when we see the sun go down, you notice that the color of the sky changes and it's not blue anymore. That's an indication that the blue spectrum light is going down. That's what the brain is relying on. When we have our screens on, the brain is fooled into thinking that that blue light is still there. And um, so the, the simplest solution to that is to not look at the screen uh, before bedtime. Yes. What, what, uh, uh, one um, uh, basic principle or rule of thumb that I would give to kids and families is for an hour before you want to go to sleep, you don't have any screens on in the house and you let the light naturally go down. Uh, and that should be, you should be having an hour, ideally you've got an hour-long bedtime wind-down process going on for your kids, and this goes back to the the challenge and the dauntingness of how early this has to start in today's busy families for this to actually work. But that's really the ideal would be that there's at least an hour there where you're winding down towards sleep and there's no screens involved. And so this means not letting the child have a screen in the in the bedroom, not the phone, yes. not the iPad, not the television. And and one of the big challenges for all of us as parents is ideally we'd be modeling for our kids the yes, same rules absolutely. we're giving them that. We all have a rule that there's not any any telephones in the dining room when we're eating together. There's no uh, screens in the bedrooms for an hour before bedtime, and we're all going to follow that rule. Naturally, very, very hard to actually do this uh, yes. in our busy lives, but this, this would be something for all of us to reflect on as far as the challenges we're giving our kids when when we're letting them have the screens or we're not modeling the behavior ourselves, and then they're supposed to follow a different rule. These are big challenges, but they're worth grappling with because if we can get the screens out of there, we're really going to make sleep easier. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think they, that's so important, the modeling where parents say, no, you can't have your phone in your room, whatever, and then uh, they're watching Netflix on their uh, phone or one thing or another. One uh, very tech-savvy patient of mine uh, kind of solved that with technology in terms of, at I think it was at 10 o'clock, half the lights in the house went off, uh-huh. and um, and that was kind of a warning sign. Okay, everybody's got to calm down. Half an hour later, the Wi-Fi stopped, and uh-huh. most of the lights went off, and phones and screens didn't work. Um, Impressive. Somehow, I, I think he figured out how to turn off the data to the phones also because yeah. you can use those without the, the Wi-Fi. 
But I thought there's, that was an excellent way. It's a good to, example. Yeah, have some warning. Okay, it's going to happen pretty soon, and yeah. that's it. Bang, you're done. Time, time to start winding down. Time to start wrapping up, and now it's actually happening. There is another low-tech solution, which is the orange filter on screens, and some mm-hmm. people have caught on to this, where you can put an orange filter over your screen. You can buy these uh, orange filters, and they filter out the blue part of the spectrum. And there's even software that'll, you know, yeah. nighttime ch- change the phone or the computer to an orange spectrum light. Yep. I and I and I. Um, I only encourage this use when there's absolutely no choice because my concern is that, as you pointed out, it's not just the blue light. It's also the stimulation uh, from the screen, the material on the screen, um, that uh, whether it's the game or whatever, it it may be fun. It may not be – for for many adults, of course, it's negative stimulation. They're watching the latest headlines and getting blood boiling over about whatever that was about. But it it also may be – for the kids that they're having fun with their ge- friends on a video game, but they're still, uh, you know, charged up and they're not winding down. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I don't encourage the blue screen for that reason, but it is an emergency solution. And I, I think that can be a rationalization. Well, it's okay because I have my screen right. filter on. Well, you're right. still staying up too late and you're still trying to do one more you're, thing. You're and still I, not winding down toward bed. Yeah. yeah. I think the uh, the trap that many adults and also teens, but uh, I see it a lot with adults, is what I call the, uh, do you have trouble getting to sleep or trouble getting to bed? And most mm-hmm. of the time it's trouble getting to bed. Yeah. Uh, and that's the one more thing syndrome. Well, that's a great I was distinction. just going to look at one yeah. more series. I was going to look at one more show. I was going to read one more thing. I was going to look up one more thing. Whatever it is, particularly with the time warp of ADHD, I'm just going to do it for 10 minutes, and it's an hour and a half. Um, that's right. You're sucked into the next thing, and that's another hour. And and maybe it should be, uh, do you have trouble getting to bed with all the lights and devices turned off? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because the other, other issue is doing stuff in the bed. So the body mm-hmm. learns that the bed is not just for sleep. It's for watching TV. It's for everything else. So that's yeah. another precaution. Yeah, and I think one of the, the things you mentioned in the, the webinar was uh, even lying on bed doing homework, or that's where you, you know, read in the afternoon or um, whatever that gets the brain associating bed with activity, um, staying awake, doing things, where bed really ought to just be sleep. And That's uh, the ideal. That's the ideal. Even when even when the bedroom has to double up as the child's study room, which I know for many families that's the mm-hmm. reality in terms of space available, try to avoid it being on the bed. So that right. the bed itself is reserved for sleep and the homework is at the desk or at the table in the room mm-hmm. so that there's a special place. And that way the body doesn't learn that the bed is a place where unpleasant things happen, but it's a place that's a pleasant place to go. You want to go there or you like it, and you want that to be a positive experience getting in the bed. Um, so... Uh, so we talked about some of those, the common problems uh, at all ages, and uh, particularly with teens, what are the some of the ways to address that delayed sleep phase, which partly is, I guess, cultural, but then there's also a very real issue of a delayed sleep phase syndrome. Teens are a very challenging group because uh, if they have ADHD, they may have a genuine sleep disorder in terms of delayed phase, but 
as a layperson, you can never tell the difference between that mm-hmm. and normal, the normal offset of adolescence because adolescence, as we talked about already, does offset the sleep cycle automatically with adolescent hormones. Uh, this is, by the way, as a footnote, another reason to be cautious with melatonin in adolescence because it's another hormone that you're going to put in there with an unknown interaction with the natural hormones of adolescence. So just a footnote of caution around the melatonin in teenagers uh, without medical supervision. But uh, that said, the... Um, the first task on this is to try to help the teen, and certainly with teens, you obviously need uh, them to want to do this uh, or to be motivated to try it, is to try to, to learn uh, an earlier cycle. So you start gradually working back little by little, uh, earlier and earlier bedtimes, uh, and until um, you think they're getting... I mean, we, we want our teens to be getting 8 to 10 hours. You know, I, I set a goal of 9 hours for, for teenagers in, mm-hmm. in high school for sleep per night, and uh, I'm, I'm sure many listeners would cringe to hear that because it's so hard to do that, but the, you, that's part of what you really want them, you know, if they're going to have to um, get up uh, early for school, well school. Yeah. yeah, they may, they need to be in the bed at 9 o'clock. And uh, so what does that mean about backing that up to what time you're going to finish homework, what time you're going to turn the screens off? It, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of shocking numbers when, when you start breaking it down for mm-hmm. what many of us are doing with our teens. But then so you've you got the teen currently going to bed at midnight, and you've already gone to bed. I've seen families where the, the parents have lost track of what the teen is doing during the night because they just had to go to bed themselves and gave yeah. up on the fight. And so, but the goal is that you start to work it back. Tonight, you're, you're getting in the bed at, at 11.30, and that means you're turning off your stuff at, at 10.30 or 11. And, mm-hmm. and we're going to do that for a week, and then we're going to take it back. And if you can do this behavior, we're going to put in the extra privileges uh, and so on that we give to teens who are showing that they're ready to function as adults in the world. Uh, and to function as adult, you've got to get yourself to bed, and you've got to get yourself up. And so that's why you have to learn to do this. Notice that we as your parents are going to bed earlier, hopefully, <laughs> because yeah. we have to get up yeah. to work. Now, of course, if the parents are staying up to midnight also not getting enough sleep, then we as parents need to look at our own behavior and say, I need to get enough sleep so I can model it for my teen. But then I also need to, to motivate my teen with, with adult-level privileges when they earn them to you know, show that they can function like an adult by getting themselves to bed earlier. But you've got to do it gradually because it's a, it's a shock both psychologically and biologically oh, yeah. to, to change it all up so, so fast. Right, and I I know well when people whether it's travel or sleep cycles have gotten off on vacation or whatever that uh, the thing to keep most consistent and hold to is the waking up time, the getting out of bed time. That's right. Um, you can't say okay, well, we've been going to sleep at midnight. We're all going to go to bed and sleep at ten. Well, that that's just not going to work. Right. But if you go to bed at midnight and you have to get up at 7 no matter what. Don't take a nap the next day. And one of the things that will help you get to sleep is how long have you been awake. It's going to be easier to get to sleep at 1030. Um, You'll be tired, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah keeping that, that That's right. Consistent. And, I, and we sh- I should assure the listeners that there's a number of specific uh, tactics for working that clock back again behaviorally. So this is really a place where if it can't be done by just trying to do it, it's really worth getting in with a counselor because there are specific tactics yeah. you can you can use to, to, to ratchet that clock back the way you want to do. And that's the first thing to do with a teen before you worry about whether they've got a true medical disorder is just behaviorally work that back with a counselor mm-hmm. uh, and adjust that clock cycle and see how far you can get. Yeah, there was a, a report in uh, the British Medical Journal back in 2015 that I've seen uh, cited recently and then a follow-up study 
in 2018 looking at just uh, what they call brief intervention, just two sessions with right. a therapist looking at what are the issues and what's good uh, sleep hygiene and keeping a sleep diary um, and then following up with that uh, a couple weeks later. Um, and uh, definitely the I think some of the interesting things I saw out of that um, was that not only were there fewer sleep problems, but quality of life improved, and teachers noticed there were less behavioral problems at school that, for kids who got better, um, better sleep. Yeah. Yes, that's one of the most uh, hopeful studies I've seen in a long time. The one you, I know the study you're referring to, and it's quite an enjoyable study to read. And part of what was striking as well, which I think you you mentioned, is it only took a couple of sessions with the counselor. Yes. This was this was not uh, three years of therapy. This was two sessions with an expert counselor who knew uh, how to teach the behavioral program, and the parent was able to go work with the child and improve their, their sleep program. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, so it's really quite straightforward, but it's having that knowledge and working through the problems, and that's where a couple of counseling sessions can make all the difference. Yeah, and I think particularly with families, it's not just, okay, the 14-year-old's going to go in and talk with the counselor. No, both parents and the 14-year-old, and if there's an 8-year-old sibling, then everybody's in there so everybody gets the information and um, knows how to work with it one of the things that uh, I think is and this is technology helping is uh, kind of a an advancement on the sleep diary and that is any of the number of apps or Fitbit bracelets whatever um, that can actually track what sleep phases you're in how much good sleep you've had. Now, admittedly, the surrogate for the sleep phase is how much are you moving. But still, I've seen people say, boy, you know, I looked and I really wasn't getting much efficient sleep, so I changed this and that. That whole idea of here's the information, you have the feedback right now um, can really help. It can really help. A couple of cautions there is is, uh, this may be outweighed by needing to keep the device out of the room. Yes. And so you have to make sure that's not going to turn into looking at the device uh, when you shouldn't. Uh, and the other is that uh, not to rely wholly on these things because no. many of them are not, not yet as reliable. But it is a great way to start to get some information and to start to realize I'm really overestimating how much sleep I'm getting. I need to get more serious about this. Mm-hmm. And I think that may be an advantage of the, um, and I use Fitbit only because that's the name of the things I, I've heard, but I know there are other various watches and one thing or another where there isn't a lot of looking at something maybe teenage eyes can see that micro print I certainly couldn't read and as you point out there are there are watch there are watches that will do this Mm -hmm. uh, or watch devices and of course some of them like the Apple watch they have lots of capabilities and you might as well have your phone on but but uh, you can set that I think uh, potentially to get the technology where you have the sleep recording on the watch, but you're not uh, putting too much temptation on yourself or the child to to secretly check the messages and the text messages and everything. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things a lot of uh, people also try sometimes out of desperation or because, well, this ought to help, is uh, either different supplements or even the over-the-counter um, things that Tylenol PM or use Benadryl or various antihistamine things. Um, if it's melatonin that may be helpful certainly if it's chamomile tea and some GABA or L-theanine or magnesium those are 
even more benign than the melatonin, antihistamines are much more of a problem. I'm much more in favor, yes, I agree. I'm much more in favor of trying the behavioral tactics first before uh, going to various over-the-counter uh, remedies, including melatonin, which, as I mentioned before, can raise unforeseen uh, uh, hazards. The, um, <clears throat> the, a number of behavioral features are available uh, for families and, and are available for kids. These, we talked about the boundary around sleep already, uh, keeping a time boundary where you're uh, going to be unwinding for sleep for a while. You're not going to be doing stuff right up to the last minute. And a space boundary where the bed mm-hmm. is only for sleep. Those are two boundaries around sleep that are very helpful. Thinking about the activity, the if you're going to bed at 9 o'clock, 8 o'clock is not the time to start the wrestling match in the living room. Right. Not the, not the time for the, for the last second uh, football game in the kitchen. Um, but this is the time to be winding down and doing quiet activities. And, and for those that are older, um, a, you know, a challenge for a lot of teenagers, again, is, is maybe that evening uh, basketball practice or that evening uh, uh, soccer yeah. game uh, under the lights or whatever. And you, you've just had a lot of great exercise, and that's good for sleep ultimately, but your body needs time to come down from that intensity. And it may be better for that exercise to be at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock instead of at 7 or 8 o'clock. And so this is a challenge is getting that right activity sequence and certainly foods, eating a big meal right before bedtime mm-hmm. can make it can, can be a factor. And so thinking about setting the meal at the right time and getting the right amount of food in you that's, so that your body has time to go back to sleep and not be focusing on, on food or digestion. Uh, and so these kinds of life cycle and life uh, often, and then whether it's maybe a warm milk or something that's relaxing at night, that associates with pleasure. So one of the things that we try to shoot for behaviorally is that going to bed is a great experience for the child. Mm-hmm. And this exactly. is where the bedtime story or the the bedtime uh, chocolate milk or whatever uh, really can play a positive role uh, as far as this is all really a nice process that's attractive to the child and enjoyable. That's really helpful. And, and that, that behavioral stuff I like to see tried before we try over-the-counter uh, helps. And oh, then, as yeah. you say, there's a, there's a number of fairly lightweight things that can be tried uh, after that before we go to anything uh, more more prescribed. Mm-hmm. And I think, like uh, pretty much anything we do, if you have a routine sequence and follow that routine, your brain learns that, okay, this is what we're going to do, this is what, okay, and the next step is we're getting in bed and going to sleep. And that's what we want to train. Um, well, that's right. As usual, and unfortunately, we're at the end of our time, um, and I very much appreciated the discussion with you. Just to sum up, I think the key point here is that during sleep, not only is the brain clearing out some of the garbage and little bits and pieces, um, kind of defragging the disk, but it's also when learning is consolidated. That's actually when the learning gets solidified in the brain. It's not when you're studying at uh, 8 o'clock at night. Uh, My guest today has been Dr. Joel Nigg with the Oregon Health Sciences University and his book, Getting Ahead of ADHD, has addresses a number of things we did today on sleep, but also on diet, exercise, video games, uh, toxins and pollutants, and it uh, is an excellent resource for everyone out there. Dr. Nig, thank you again for joining me. Thank you, David. My pleasure, and and thank you, everyone. So take care, and be well until next time.